Hi everyone, uh, welcome to today's webinar. We're going to be looking at um, how to prepare your business for an exit. Um, and we've got a really good panel. Um, so we're gonna run through various different topics. Um, we're gonna look at how long do you need to give yourself to prepare for an exit? Um, we're gonna look at how do I actually prepare for the exit? We'll look at the different types of exit um, and then we're going to make sure we've got 10 or 15 minutes at the end uh, for everyone to be able to answer, uh, ask any questions. So please put them uh, any questions you do have in the chat box uh, and we'll come to them at the end. Uh, before we go any further, though, um, we're, we're just going to do a quick uh, round of intros. Um, so um, I, I will go last because I'm the least important person here on today's webinar. So let's start with Richard Millington. Hi everyone, I'm a partner in Shoesmiths. Um, I do a lot of work uh, investment on investment projects in fashion. Uh, my personal background was around eight or nine years with Nike and then subsequently some time with Iconics Brand Group that owned uh, brands like Material Girl, uh, the Peanuts brand, Umbro and Lee Cooper. I guess some of my most recent experience was we, we um, worked on a transaction last year to acquire Bench. We've got various other projects ongoing right now. Over to you, Matt. Perfect. Oliver? Hi, my name is Oliver Shaw. Uh, I'm uh, currently the CEO of Calibrate, which is a private equity-backed um, uh, uh, pricing, optimization, and location intelligence uh, software provider for retail. Um, and my background is as a serial uh, private equity CEO, both doing trade transactions for buying builds in my responsibility, my businesses, and also um, in exiting um, businesses successfully for the private equity investors. Alan? I'm Alan Horridge. Uh, by trade, I'm an accountant, but uh, in the late 1990s, I found myself with a company called Americana, who were the, the owners of Bench in the, the original days. And uh, for my sins, I uh, headed a, a, an MBO in the early 2000s and exited the business not long after that. I've been there. I've literally got the T-shirt. <laughs> uh, and Mr Morley? Uh, I'm a Senior Investment Manager and Director of the uh, Manchester office of Bruin Dolphin. Uh, you've not heard of us, that's okay. Uh, mm. We're a billion pound business now uh, and obviously I love it so much. I've been here for uh, just over 20 years. Uh, as a Wealth Manager, my, my role day to day is that I work mainly with entrepreneurs who, um, as you'll know, have very little free time whatsoever um, and I try to help them to understand their own financial position and, and to help them throughout the business life cycle all the way to exit and beyond. Um, we'd often describe wealth planning or wealth advisory as, as being your personal CFO or FD, uh, which means we look after, I guess the distinction for this panel is I look after the individual rather than the business so that the individuals can get the very best outcome for them and their family. Perfect, thank you, Richard. Um, I'm also a wealth manager at Bruin Dolphin in Manchester. Um, and I very much like to work with big corporates as well. Um, but more importantly, we have a very good panel today, um, which covers all different areas. We've got the legal perspective, we've got the personal perspective, uh, and with uh, Alan and Oliver, we've got real uh, practitioners who've lived through this. So um, it's a really good opportunity to ask any questions that you do have. So, so let's, let's get straight onto it then. Um, and I think when we consider an exit, the very first thing that we sort of have to look at is how far before an exit do I need to be planning one? So um, when do I know is the right time for an exit and how long am I actually going to need to prepare for one? Um, so um, Oliver, um, it's probably a good starting point. Yeah, so, so certainly, you know, from, from perspective of, of, you know, the experiences I've had, founders and always need to be providing some thought to your exit plan and you know the longer that you have and um the more thought that you put into it the likelihood is that you can create value so so you know i would say optimally you know running a three-year plan that's focused on a series of criteria that you would you know accept um both in terms of value of the business or performance of the business as an exit period what that will do is land you at a space where you can start you know, lining your business up and all the pre preparations you'll hear, you know, from, from Simon taking, you know, so, sorry, from Richard, from uh, a legal point of view or a financial point of view, organise the business from that point of view, but also producing the right performance for your business to be able to get the best, best value for it. So that can really focus the mind. So I would say, you know, how long's a piece of string, but 
you know, three years is a good time frame to think about. Perfect. Alan, have you got anything to add to that? Uh, the, the, the question that I'd ask is not uh, uh, when, but, but, but why are you looking to, to, to exit your business? And, and I think that the, the why will, will drive the when. Uh, but, but, but I agree absolutely with, with Oliver. You need to have a, a good, clean record, three years minimum, you know, three years decent accounts, properly audited, showing growth. And, and the other phrase that people kept saying to me when I was involved in this at the sharp end is make sure that the, the investors coming in are aware that there's some, and the phrase that was always used is there's some bread on the water. So, so there needs to be some sort of seeds for, for them to, to feed on going forward. So, uh, yeah, that, that, that's, a, that, that's my advice at the moment. Perfect. And uh, Richard Millington, from a legal perspective, how long, how long do you need to give them the best advice and to get everything in order? Uh, it depends on the clients. I mean, you can, in simple terms, in terms of how, how quickly these transactions can close, can be a matter of, uh, of weeks, you know, up to, up to a month if, if, if you're under extreme duress. <laughs> uh, what, what we prefer to see is a more measured um, plan where it starts really with a detailed data room that's built out. So having all that key information about your employees, where your IP is, is your IP in the founder still? Do you need to move the IP so it's in the right place, making sure the right tax advice is in place that underpins how you might be moving parts of your business around so it becomes one simple, easy thing for someone to buy? Um, it, it's, you know, even the transactions, I mean, we're working on, on one right now, which has come unstuck right in the middle of it because there's a financial irregularity that's arisen because of how one of the businesses was being accounted for, which is sad to stop the whole process. So it's the little bits that can really trip you up in the middle of it. So the more you plan and the more you understand where that revenue is coming from and you've got clear contracts and agreements that sit behind that revenue, it makes the process that you run where ideally you can then invite in two, three, four, however many interested parties it is to go through that data room to then produce really solid bids. And it ultimately then gives you really good leverage to get the best value deal, ultimately, right? because and, it's not going to be undone by something small tripping you up um, that's going to ultimately have someone trying to reduce the price, you're chipping the price at the last minute because they found something. Do, uh, do, do you think that you get people coming to you early enough then, or, or do you find that it is tends to be rushed through at the end? Uh, it's, it's hard to be too too general. I, I have ones where I'm working right now, very very early stages, because we we tend to work. Our preferred role is as trusted advisors, so you're always in there talking to the founder. You're not necessarily charging for it, but you're spending time understanding that business, so you have a natural relationship then with with the guys. You understand their business, so you can give them that counsel as they're going along. Say, you know what, you probably want to have a look at that, um, and then. You know, that, that, that's the ideal thing. Often though, it comes in from advisors who've already run a data room. They, they could have already had it set up. So it really, it really um, depends. The, the key thing for us is when we come to closing those deals, it's having that process in place, making sure the right information is shared so that when you're negotiating the actual contract as well, as early as possible, the issues are flushed out so that you can plan on how you're going to tackle each issue, plan on how you're going to tackle each point, plan on how you're going to make sure ultimately uh, as the owner, you get out of it what you want financially or otherwise perfect that's very good uh, and richard from from the founder or, or the management team's perspective um if you're looking after their personal finances you know is there a preference for you you know does it help to be in earlier uh, yeah i mean from our point of view it's the earlier the better thinking about it isn't it um it means you can get your ducks in a row you can start thinking about what life looks like on the other side for you i think what i talked to most clients about is is the magic number so that's a really key piece of information that it's really helpful really powerful actually to know um, how much you actually need from this sale to achieve what you want to achieve in life and theoretically you know we only I guess good financial planning is you only you only work for as long as you need to um, uh, and if you've passed that point then really you're just doing it as for a lifestyle as a lifestyle business you know you must you must have the passion for it if you've passed that point already but how do you know if you've got to that point and i think you can only know once you price up your what we call pricing up your future lives so thinking about what you might want to do on the other side and that's not necessarily you know just disappearing off to bermuda if it's on the green list you know um it's 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 
thinking about you know the key things that are going to be really important to you it could be that you go again or that you want to do some angel investing or you want to do some philanthropic stuff or you you know you just simply want to never work again um and if that's the case then knowing that that magic number is probably the most powerful piece of information that you can have well i think i think we can pretty much sum up then from what we've just heard that preparation in all areas of the business and giving yourself time is, is obviously beneficial um, whether that's from legal, personal, or you know, actually running the business. So, if I've now decided that I've hit my magic number and I'm preparing for for my business, and I know Alan, you touched on it, you know, in part. What am I looking for within my business to make it more appealing? Um, and you know, you've obviously been through this, you and all of it. What team do you put around yourselves to, to you know to sort of make you more appealing and so so that you get the best possible result for you? Yeah, the, the the thing I found when we were doing our, our MBL is uh, that you need to have a really compelling story. Uh, we had a really compelling story. We, we had a really uh, fast growth and, uh, and, 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 and we're very profitable. And, and obviously people sort of bought into that. Uh, the, the other thing that, that really helped us was publicity. Uh, in, in, the, in the old days, this is the early 2000s, uh, before social media had really taken off. We had lots and lots of, of things in, in uh, the trade press. In, in law. I think we just lost Alan a bit there. Sorry, Oliver, w- would you mind picking up on that question? I'll try to. So, so I think that, that you, you know, you as you understand um you know, your business and the opportunities that sit, sit, sit within it, I think it's really important that you do two things. One is really make it clear and easy for investors to understand that. So to Alan's point, you know, whether that's, um, you know, uh, press or, or trade campaigns and stories that you've put out there, you know, you being really clear on what, what, what those, you know, that value or that uniqueness of your business is and how that's got future and longevity and then there's also that I think what Alan called the bread on the water or, or, the, or the money that's left on the table is showing um, a buyer how they're going to double the size of the business in in three years, if you see what I mean. You know, so so, you know, you can tell that story of continued growth and the fact that that momentum is going to going to roll through. I think you mentioned something, Matthew, about the team. I think what I would say around that is. You know, it's critical that that you or you as a management team understand what it is that you're going to do afterwards. If you're selling the business because you want to walk away, then that changes what you would do. If you're selling the business because you want more investment to grow faster and you're willing to do another five or 10 years in the business, then that's a different thing. And, and, and you know, if that means that you know, as a founder, you want to exit the business, you need somebody running that business as a chief executive already. Because if you're still sat in the main chair, you're going to find it really difficult in a process to extricate yourself from it. You need your successor to be in place and actually be proven already. Because if it's a case of saying, oh, I can give it to Bob, you know, the new investors sat there saying, well, hang on, I bought you. That's, that's actually what I invested in. So, so I, I want you here for a while. So you need to think about how you're going to, if you like, evolve the business through the exit in order to know how do I build the team and how do I emphasize what the, what, what, um, what, what the business does. The final bit is, is you need to sort out your dirty washing. Um, Richard talked a moment ago about finding something out in the middle of a process, which, which which is, you know, a bit of a bump in the road. You know, some of those things are binary. You know, if you've got a dispute with a customer that needs to be resolved, you know, that could actually be a walk away thing. It couldn't just be, you know, we'll down, download the value or, we, you know, so don't leave anything undealt with. Or at least if, it, if there is something in there, get it out on the table so that everybody knows that it's there. Right. You know, there's no point hiding anything because it will be found. Perfect. Alan, just to come back to you, um, you mentioned about marketing the business and the fact that you had lots of publicity. Do you think social media has slightly changed the way that you would you would have sold your business in today's world? Yeah, social media has its downsides as well, doesn't it? And one of the things I'd recommend is that you have a look back at your uh, previous postings on on various things and see if there's anything that uh, you, you wouldn't wish uh, potential investors to see, um, and and uh, uh, also I mean, th- 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 there's nothing wrong with, with, with being in newspapers and, and being in in uh, magazines if it's for the for the, for the right reason, but but you do need to go back on your social media to, to, just to make sure there's nothing there. Uh, as Oliver says, you know you, you don't want your your dirty washing out in public. You, you need to to sort that out. 
Uh, the, the other thing, if I could just add before I forget, because when you get to my age, you do forget things. Um, it, it's important as well when you're going through this process not to take your eyes off the current business because it's, it's so easy to, to get involved in, in 12 hours a day in, in doing things to, to exit the business, whereas the business itself is suffering because you're not paying it the attention that you need to. Uh, it's probably a good opportunity to bring Mr Millington in whilst we're talking about um, getting everything on the table and making sure we've got things, you know, all our ducks in a row. Um, I suspect from a legal perspective, that's even more important. Yeah, I just want to reiterate what Alan said there is, is that it, you can underestimate the amount of time this kind of process can take and the amount of focus and energy, uh, not just from you, but from others in, in your management team, depending on what, what, what kind of point you're at really. Um, and, and, it, and it is, it is crucial throughout all of it to really, really understand uh, not just the process, but actually from our point of view, you know, the bits of paper and what those bits of paper are actually saying, I'm going to say, uh, and to really understand the impact of them. So I always say to people, you know, you, you're going to end up with a whole bunch of documents that you, you're going to sign. And actually, each of them are part of a story. Uh, and you've really got to understand how that's that's going to work out. I mean, the crucial, um, you know, one of the crucial negotiation points and one that we find is, is negotiated very early is, is liability caps in these sort of scenarios, right? So, so. As, as a founder, if you're doing a full exit, then you'll typically look to have, you know, no more than sort of a 12 month, ideally less period on which that you can potentially be on the hook for issues that have, that have happened in your business. Um, and so, and, and there's various insurance products. So, so it's very much understanding uh, if it is going for a full exit, you know, what is it? Is this really going to be a full exit? Are you going to be able to cleanly walk out of this business and, and forget about it? Is there something that you're kind of secretly aware of that maybe? You're, you're trying to hide in which case definitely bring it out talk to your lawyer about it um because again it comes down to having a smooth process where you can get to your objectives as as, as quickly as possible perfect uh, and and mr morley what once you know that um someone's come to you and you're looking after their personal finances and you know they're going to exit does that change your approach um to an extent it does you know to an extent it does i think um when you are working in a business you and you are the business owner, generally you've got a huge amount of flexibility over what you earn and how you earn it. So you've got control over dividends, bonus, salary. Um, obviously, when you've done some form of deal, whether it's walk away on day one or whether you hang on, that situation might change. And you know, one of the interesting elements of having Oliver on this panel that I was going to quiz him about if we get the chance is you know often when I'm sat with people who've taken funding in PE funding or VC funding you know they ask they'll ask us and say well can I go to my PE masters and ask for a pay rise or can I ask them to pay into my pension or can I ask them to um, defer my bonus to next year can I you know all of these questions um, where you had control before you gave up control um, you've got to think about it, you know, and and when we talked before about how early you need to start thinking about this sort of stuff, you know, you get a, a certain allowances every year. I won't go into it right now, but, you know, you, go, you get certain allowances every year that you can use as when you're earning money and as, as a salary, for example. And once you've sold your business, those allowances have gone, you know. Um, so you've got you've got to get your head around that stuff. Uh, definitely, Matt. Yeah. Well, it's probably a good chance to, 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 to go back to Oliver then. Oliver, obviously, if you're preparing your business for exit and you've got third party interests, so you've got different investors, you know, does that change your approach? You know, how do you get everyone on board? Yeah, I think the, the, the first thing, and, you know, we've talked about it a couple of times, but this clarity over what you're trying to achieve is is really important, Matthew, because if you if you don't, if you're sort of arriving as, you know, without an idea of what the shape of the business is afterwards, it's, re it's really difficult for you to identify what the right home for your business is. And critically, the right home for your business might not be the person that's going to write the biggest check, right? So just because somebody gives you the big valuation and, and tells you it's going to be wonderful, you know, in certain circumstances in private equity, you might be asked to roll some of that money back into um, the, the buyout fund anywhere, you know, anywhere beyond, you know, 50, 60% of it might need to go back in. You know, you need to make sure that you understand what the needs of that is. You know, equally, uh, um, I think Richard was talking a moment ago about the kind of reps and warranties that might um, be put set against you. You've also got to think about, you know, elements like deferred consideration and how it is. So, you know, a price is not a price. 
a price is, is a structure, uh, sorry, it's related to a structure and you need to understand what that structure is and how, how comfortable um, you, you would be with it. And so that means in certain circumstances, you might be more comfortable with a trade deal or you might be more comfortable with, with you know, some other structure that would work through. You know, critically today, you, you know, literally today in software, you know, pr private equity is paying two to three times profit as the, as the multiple than traders pay, right? And so actually at the moment, the, the most attractive deals are going to be private equity, but they may not be personally the most attractive deals, if that, if, if that makes sense. And to your point, Richard, you asked the question about, you know, how flexible can you be? You know, what I would say is, you know, all of those considerations, again, talking about preparation, need to be done before the deal, right? So once you've done the deal, um, you know, you are an employee and you are in the mix with everybody else and your ability to be flexible is, is, is limited. So the time, you know, what you've got to remember if you're staying in the business is you've got to do two things. You've got to negotiate the sale of the business. You've also got to negotiate your, your personal deal. And if you've got a combination of investors in your business, you might need your own advisors to help you do that. But don't be afraid to do that. So it's not just, you know, there's people helping you with the sale of the business. There's also people helping you with, with structuring it right, right for you. And I would say that, you know, going back to everything we said, clarity at the start of what your personal objectives are and what you want to do and whether you're in for another five or 10 years, whether you, you are looking for funding to, to, to build the next piece of growth or whether you want to come out is really critical in understanding how that's going to work. Yeah. Um, Mr. Millington, if you, if you can I chip in there, please. Of course you can, Alan. Just a couple of things. Uh, I, I, sorry, I, I missed a little bit of what Oliver was saying, but, 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 but I think it's uh, everybody who, who uh, if there's anybody who is investing in, in your company, you need to do your due diligence on, on them to, to find out as much as you can about, about them as, as to how they, you know, uh, look upon your business and, and what their track record is. And uh, if, if you're doing, looking at things like, like um, salaries and bonuses and all that sort of stuff, it, it, it's a two-sided agreement. It, it, they're asking you for things. You can ask them for things as well and make it part of the overall agreement that, that, that your salary, your bonus, et cetera, is, uh, is in writing beforehand. Yeah, no, no, no. Um, I, I think that that's very important. Actually, um, I think when we, what I was going to ask Richard then was, if, you, if you've got those multiple parties, Richard, um, do you tend to find that most businesses now have agreements in place early doors so that there is no conflict when it comes to exits? Or do you still find when you are an advisor on one side of the table to one part of the sale party that, you know, there can be conflict? Do you mean between shareholders, Matt? Yes. Sorry. Yeah. Um, so generally... If, if, if we're buying, let's say, then if there is conflict, we won't, you won't know, you, you obviously keep it within, right? Because you want to make it as simple and as smooth a process. So you'll often be told, no, it's fine, that shareholder will come along. You might have what's called drag rights, i.e., you know, one shareholder might have the ability anyway, because the majority to, to pull others into the sale, whether they like it or not. That's not uncommon, particularly where you've got minorities. Um, and, and so, the extent to which, and if often if there's a good price being offered, then that soothes everybody. The extent to which they might have had an issue before with each other is is swept away um, because because they're they're actually cashing out now. Um, I think if you're on the if you're on the sell side, then it depends what rights the shareholders have got. So as I said, if there's drag rights, if there's tag rights, either the ability for the shareholders to jump into the sale. Uh, changes the dynamic if you need to have that shareholders consent then it does change the dynamic i.e the shareholders will have to uh, uh, agree to the, to the sale otherwise some shareholders may get left behind or may ultimately block the sale because the buyer might want 100 percent, right might want it fully clean um and then it comes back down to where their shareholders have come from sometimes there could be a key employee who's a shareholder which you've got to think even more about okay what's this person going to want to do after because potentially they're a they're a key asset to the business um uh, and so it, again you get looking through the shareholders agreement but but and, and in, in when you're doing that it's almost it's not too late but you you need to have those shareholders move together i mean one one thing to be super conscious of is always you might have got on really well with someone before uh, and you might have decided, hey, it's okay, we don't need to have a shareholders agreement because we just see eye to eye, and that's fine. Uh, that does change 100% when money is on the table. 
Right. And suddenly they'll go and see their advisors and their advisors will say, oh, did you agree? Oh, you didn't agree. Oh, there's nothing in writing. Oh, OK, maybe we've got more leverage here so we can push our position. So it's, it's just getting that lined up might be a little bit painful at the start because you have to have those uncomfortable conversations with with other shareholders, with your partners. But it does help when you get to this uh, this this stage. When, as I said, if you think if you're the buyer, you want to buy something very clean, you want to have uh, knowledge and understanding um, of the issues that could come because uh, the buyer will be spending money on professional advisors, on accountants, on lawyers, um, potentially on, on funders. Um, so yeah, that's, it, it's one uh, that you have to be very mindful of. And I think it's in support of that Richard, you know, not in a, not in a nefarious way, but, but a buyer of a business, particularly of a scale transaction is looking for those breaks in the team. Right. And, and if they can find a way into the gap, even if it's just to get the inside track from an expert who just happens to be a disgruntled employee or a disgruntled shareholder, they'll, they'll, they've got there's whole firms whose job it is to, to, to find those people. Right. So, you know, getting everything cleared up beforehand and making sure everybody's lined up is, is, is just part of this sort of housework we, we were talking about before. Yeah, I think one thing on that as well to be mindful of is, is you know, if you do put yourself up for sale, it could be the competitors want to come and have a look at you as well. So you've got to be think really carefully about how you manage access to and thinking hard about what your USP is and to the extent someone might try and undermine that. Or, you know, why do people, what is the barrier to a, another company coming in and setting up and just straight up competing with you, taking some of your best talent, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you do have to be watchful of that. Alan, just to come back to something you said about um, your agreements with with other investors, how, how much focus in those early stages when you're seeking investment goes on exit strategies? Uh, probably not a lot in, in the early stages, but, but, but as it gets closer to, to, to signing the deal, you do start to think about exit strategies and uh, you know how, how you're protected and, and how you make sure that, that you end up getting what you expected to, to get. And uh, we, we, we relied very heavily then, because it starts to get, a, you know, really sort of uh, legalistic. We relied heavily on, on, our, uh, on our lawyers to, to, to put together, you know, the, the, the right form of words and to make sure that we were protected. Perfect. Oliver, you, you've sat on both sides of one of these agreements again. Um, as an investor, um, you know, how easy is it for a founder to come to you to seek an exit? And equally, having founded a business and sold it, um, you know, do, do you always feel comfortable being able to approach everyone? Or as Alan, you know, was hinting at then, you've, you've hopefully had these conversations far, you know, early enough in you know, the day to, to make these things easier. Yeah, so, so I think dealing with, the, you know, typically I think, you, you know, you can... I mean, in today's market, you know, if you've got if you've got a decent business, you know, people will be looking for you anyway, right? So you you don't have you don't have to necessarily be picking up the phone to find to say do you, you know do you want to buy? Now, what you might do is particularly focus on um, is is particularly focus on some strategic buyers, some people you really want to have a relationship with. So you might have a target investor or investment house. You might have a trade business that you think would work well as a good home for your business and, and you know it's not a bad strategy to to um develop those equally from um you know an investor's point of view when you're looking for businesses to buy you know some of the best deals i did um uh, were were you know deals that we've been working on for three years and to richard's point before he talked about the magic number i remember one particular deal which is a, re a really nice piece of software and i met those guys and said i you know we definitely need this we definitely want to bring this in and they had a number in their head, which happened to be sort of 15, 16 million pounds to exit. And their business didn't justify it. And we used to meet, you know, every two or three months, we built up a really strong relationship until sort of three, four years later, they could justify a price that was close to their exit rate. And, and the business justified us paying the price. So we were able to do it. So I think, you know, you're exactly the, the right thing is to, to maintain a good level of good quality relationships with some people that, that, that you might want as investors or equally, you know, if you're, if you're getting entertained or if you're getting inbound, entertain those conversations. Don't be afraid to have them. Perfect. Thank you, Oliver. I'm conscious you have to go now. So th um, thank listen, you for your time. Much, guys. Thank uh, you. I'll catch you later.
Um, I think what we're going to do now is, is we're going to look at the different types of exit, if that's okay. Um, you know, we, we've, we often hear of, of the golden standard of an IPO, but I think um, we'll leave that one for the moment and we'll probably look at trade sales, you know, to begin with. Uh, Mr. Millington, would you mind just talking through what we mean by a trade sale and, and so, sort of the, the legal um, structure of one? I guess in, in versus an MBO or an IPO or yeah, so it's private, private, private equity. So effectively selling into selling to a corporate, selling into another another business, and you're you're selling as a as a going concern, um, and that's going to be structured either as a share sale um, or potentially as an asset sale. I.e., what gets transferred is your contracts, your staff, your IP, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, generally happens if uh, there's a certain sort of tax or financial issue more, more, more frequently you'd expect to share sell in, in the kind of scenarios I guess we're, we are looking at um, here today. Um, and so in that eventuality you become a subsidiary of the parent, your new parent, i.e. the corporate that, is, that has acquired you. Um, and you know, what you, you typically find is, is those buyers are looking to acquire you as part of a broader strategy which they're looking to implement. So you, you fit neatly into that. And I think it's, it's what Alan, um, sorry, Oliver was just talking about is, is how you um, find those buyers and how you can almost sometimes build your whole business so that it naturally will then plug into that other business. That's certainly something you know, I've experienced when I was with this Iconics brand group. You know, we acquired a fashion brand there that we'd been talking to for two or three years. And, and, and the model that that brand was actually operating to was our model. And they built that model deliberately so that when they got to the right scale, it was a very easy business to plug into our broader corporate business, um, which meant the transaction was, you know, was, was really very, very smooth. And would you say trade sales are the, more, the most common type of exit or...? Uh, it will. <laughs> it's a very broad. I wouldn't go. I wouldn't go that far in terms of this. that's on I mean, We all deal with sort of small, small parts of of our, of our world, right? Um, what what I what I generally deal with when I'm when I'm working, you know, in 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 fashion is, um, it's a mixture. Really, it's a mixture. They could, we, we, at, the, at the moment, we're looking at one where they they need to get investment in to make a bigger acquisition. So actually, that's going to end up being a debt. That they take on to finance that uh, acquisition, but there's going to be an element of equity that's built into that over time, and that's very much a creature of that particular transaction. Um, we've got others that we know are, that they're building up, so they might actually be able to sell to a fund because what that business is going to do is produce a steady stream of income over a period of time, um, uh, and and so it will naturally um, be of interest to that kind of that kind of business. Uh, the, the smaller one, the startups, the SMEs. Are, can be um, you know, the, the, you know, more interested to trade, but often the, the, that first level of investment that comes in can be, you know, you go through series one, series two, series three, et cetera. And that series one funding can be 150, 200 grand, let's say that kind of small level, um, which is just a whole bunch of different, you know, it can be friends, et cetera, et cetera, before you then maybe potentially as your second round get, get more into private equity, which obviously we can talk about um, shortly. Uh, and then it's it can be private equity then are looking to actually sell it into you know some of the bigger corporates who've got because it's you know, it's not cheap right who are then maybe looking to to sell it in um, uh, at that point so perfect and uh, Alan um, you, you've obviously um, participated in a successful MBO so w would you mind just letting us know sort of what happened and what to expect of someone who's going through that process. Uh, well, it, it happened because we, we had um, uh, directors and, and founders of the business who uh, wanted to, to, to separate, and we did look at all sorts of ways to do it. We looked at a potential trade sale, and we looked at IPOs, and eventually we, 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 we decided that we put together an, an MBO. Uh, I, I, I was uh, speaking to one of the directors one day, and he said to me, you want to buy the business, don't you? And I said, yeah, okay. And he said, well, name your price. So I thought, well, I know how this works. I say something ridiculously low. He says something ridiculously high. We meet in the middle. So I said something ridiculously low. And he said, yeah, okay. Organize it in the next three months. So uh, I rung up the uh, our, our solicitors and, and our accountants straight away and said, 
help, what do we do? And, and we started the process then. Uh, but, 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 but the business uh, had done very well in, in the previous three, three years. We had had lots of publicity. We've won lots of prizes for the, uh, the, the sales growth and all that sort of stuff. We went from, in four years, we went from 4 million turnover to, to 14 million turnover. So, it, you know, it's a real, a real rapid growth. Uh, and, and the process was from there, I was just, you know, swept along in, in having to do what I was asked to do. Um, had, I, had I known then how, how difficult it was going to be, yeah. that, that then I might have known how to know. We'd have still done it. But, but, but it, yeah. it, it does take up a lot of your time. Uh, the, the only advice I was given before we, we actually did it, somebody said to me, oh, I've done something like this. Go to your filing cabinet, photocopy everything, uh, put it into files, index it, cross-index it, because no matter what it is, they will ask for it at some stage. And, uh, and that, was, that was probably roundabout right. You, you have to provide an enormous amount of information and data to, to these people to, to get the thing in, 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 uh, finally sorted out. So when, in terms when, of we, when we had our, our, our final uh, sign-off session, it was about two, two or three o'clock in the morning in a, a, a big solicitor's office in Manchester. And there was me and three other of the, 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 the MBO team sat around this table. And at one stage, I, I said to, to, to my crew, just count up around the table. And it was 28 people from the, the solicitors and the accountants around the table and, and those four people and mounds and mounds of paperwork. Uh, so so it, it, it's quite a long, detailed, involved process. But hey, at the end of the day, if you get a big lump of money put into your bank account, <laughs> you know, it's worth it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I truly hope so. Um, we, we touched on this before, um, Mr. Morley. Um, we have this idea of IPOs as being a gold standard. I suppose the question is, is it? Um, would you mind just talking through what an IPO is? Sure. Um, well, an IPO is an initial public offering um, and it can take many forms and we've only 20 few minutes left. So <laughs> it's probably not best to go into a monologue on that. But effectively, it's about taking a business that is privately owned by one or more shareholders to become a publicly owned business. And what that means effectively is, is issuing shares that the public can buy. And, and um, uh, often it's, um, it can be quite an expensive way to sell your business in terms of all the advice uh, that you need throughout that process. Um, and as we were chatting before this, this started, um, it's not always the golden goose that it seems to be. Um, you know, it's fraught with problems. You open up, you're opening your books up to the world uh, for another point. Um, um, but it is becoming, it is an option. You know, lots of advisors who um, you might engage with along the journey. So we talked about building, building a team around the people selling that business and getting the right advisors involved. It's, it's worth understanding that not every advisor can take your business public. Some do not have that remit and don't have the capability to do that. Um, but obviously they're the ones that hit the headlines. And you asked before about trade sales and how popular or if they're the most common exit and uh, you know in the round. And well, it's the, it's the IPOs and the trade sales that tend to get the column inches. Um, you know, such and such is bought out by such and such. But actually a lot of the deals that are happening, particularly in the Northwest, is, uh, you know, happening through private equity, um, generally, I, I would say, but um, you just don't really get to see as much of that because it's done privately. Um, uh, and I think that is the point about an IPO is that you, you know, you, you need to, um, you need to understand that every, all of your dirty laundry goes public effectively. Um, and you lose, you may end up losing uh, quite a bit of control of that business. So We've gone through those three now. The one that you touched on at the start, uh, Mr. Millington, was, was private equity, and Richard just hinted at it then. Um, I think in the press, we're beginning to see it come to light a little more at the moment. Number one, is that fair to say? And, and when we talk of private equity, would you mind just sort of, sort of explaining what we mean by it? And, and, and when we say a private equity sale, what that is? Um, yeah, sure. Just, just before I just go back to the to the IPO um, point as well. It's just important to remember, it, ultimately that's often a, a big fundraise. So i.e. you will be 
it may be that you're going to expand into new markets. You've got something that's highly scale, scalable, but you don't have the full funds to enable you to do it. You have something that, you know, institutional investors are ultimately potentially going to be interested in and you, your advisors will be able to talk to you about how that can, how that can work. Um, and you're exactly right. You, you do give up control. You're still going to have a stake in it, but you'll typically be giving up control and, and walking into a whole lot, a far more regulated environment because ultimately, you know, Joe public can, uh, acquire a piece of uh, your business so, uh, hence it is far more regulated than than otherwise and it's also important to remember that what can go public can go private so just be super aware of the takeover code you know look at man united as a great example if you're publicly traded you can be you can be still be privatized you people can still buy you mm-hmm. um in terms of in terms of private equity um yeah, what is it? It's effectively, it's 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 a fund, i.e., somebody or a body with 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 you know deep pockets, typically coming in to acquire you because they think they can make some money, uh, being part of your journey uh, and exiting you in a whether it's three or five or ten year period, typically no more than ten, um, and they will they will they will go in and effectively provide funding for that period. Uh, you will get you know pretty tight management uh, depending on the private equity investor uh, you know the kind of quarterly meetings with those investors uh, and they will get right into the detail they will ultimately have and have bought into a plan under which they will exit so they'll bought in at a certain multiple of, of EBITDA uh, or revenue and they'll have a target in terms of what they want to exit for because their fund will ultimately be open for a set period only and what that means is ultimately they've, they've got that fund there to generate returns for the investors who put the put the money in um, so they will be very very focused on getting a return on that investment in a way that you probably weren't as a founder and that can cause a lot of friction yeah they do come with sometimes a health warning um, as a founder. I would say, I would say it's not so much health. I mean, we do, I do a lot of this in, not just in in fashion, but in, in sport as well. And um, there there can be a benefit that strictly speaking from an efficiency benefit, from a business efficiency point of view, they will bring a lot. That just isn't necessarily what you as a founder might've, thought you wanted yeah. <laughs> um, to be to be to be blunt but it probably is what is you could argue about this and no one size fits all but it's going to be drive the revenue drive the profitability of that business alan i could see you nodding along <laughs> yes <laughs> first of all I, I think with an ipo as well that there's also a little health warning that, that you never know who the investors are going to be uh, and there may well be somebody who's building up equity in, in your business who, who you might not necessarily, if it was uh, if you knew about it, you would want it. Uh, and, and yeah, I agree with private equity that that the the the, the amount of, of regulation that you have is is completely different than, than you would have anticipated before. We, we uh, got through the business by by having virtually no management information apart from sales figures. And we had sales figures which we produced every day, and we showed previous day, the, the, the week to date, month to date, year to date, compared to last year. And, and, we, and we stuck it up over the photocopier uh, because we knew that everybody would always see those figures at least once a week. Uh, and that's probably about all, all that we, we really used, uh, you know, to, to drive the business. Uh, when we got to private equity, we had to produce a, something like a 30 odd page. Uh, management report once a month, which we looked at in the third week of the month. By which time, you, you know, so things things have moved on. So, so yeah, the 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 uh, the the, uh, the regulation does change with private equity, and and sometimes in, in a dynamic business, it can it can get on your nerves. And I think I said beforehand when we were chatting, go and ask Mike Ashley. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, we'll leave the rest of that conversation we had before. <laughs> I was just going to say, Matt, I think, you know, we kind of touched on it and Alan went into some detail on it around the MBO side of things. And that and it touches on all those points that we've just mentioned about who you want in your business and who you want owning that business. I mean, just because you, you receive a lump sum in your bank account, you know, doesn't mean that you don't then care about the business that you've sold. And, in, in, you know, largely there is a legacy you know, that you probably want to protect and 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 um, 
Uh, that's not always the case, by the way. Sometimes you, you, you're happy to, to have got rid. But I think in lots of cases, you know, particularly the people that we speak to, they want to leave a legacy. They want to know it's in good hands and in good shape. And, um, you know, I think when you're selling the business to people who are already in that business, we touched on MBO management buyout, but, you know, the, you can also sell it to a trust, for example, that's owned by the employees. And there's some fantastic tax, tax advantages of doing that. But I think the important thing is, is within the MBO structure and within that trust structure is you know exactly who runs that business. You know exactly who's going to take it over. You've worked with them probably for, for 10 years plus. Um, you know, you brought them onto the management team. You know that they're in good shape. And leaving that legacy, I think, for some people more often now than ever before, I think, particularly with, you know, a lot of uh, businesses that have got a focus on ESG, um, you know, and sustainability, it's it's a real um, it, you know it's a real positive in knowing exactly who's looking after that business for the next twenty years and beyond. Perfect. So, so uh, thanks for that. I, I suppose th- th- before we wrap up, sort of different types of exits. Um, are there any? I mean, I mean we've, I suppose we've kind of touched on it with all of them. D- does it make a difference if we're looking for a partial sale? You know, is there any particular vehicle that's better for a partial sale? Again, it comes back to, I think, what Richard was just hinting at. Was, you know, yeah, how much control do you want to lose? Sorry, Richard. Yeah, so Matt, so if, if you're looking for that kind of, you know, that partial exit, um, I mean, ultimately, I mean, with private equity, often you stay involved anyway. Or same, same with, with an IPO. Often what you're looking for is that additional investment because you've, you've got a vision uh, and you need funding for that. So, so to the points that we've discussed around, you know, the private equity eye, the extent to which they'll come in with their own ideas. If we take private equity out, if I look at just a group of investors who are now going to be partners on a company, and we talked about that a little bit earlier, right, in terms of the importance of agreeing, you know, it could be daft stuff like who gets to write a check. Not that anyone writes checks anymore, but you know what I mean? Who gets to authorise payments? Who gets to sign contracts? Who gets to decide who's employed? Um, uh, who gets to decide if you're going to stay in that office, if you're going to open a store, if you're going to revamp your website, all of those little things, um, uh, you know, you need to think about what we'll typically see when people are going in could be level of budget control. Uh, but but it's, um, you know, with the likes of private equity, as you said, there's going to be all sorts of additional controls. And again, it comes down to, I'm saying this, but it comes down to the amount of leverage you've got. How hot is your business? How many people are falling over themselves to invest in you or to acquire you? And how are you able to heat that process up? Because if you are, you'll be able to get away with less controls. You know, you'll be able to be more demanding. Um, and, and, and just like when you sell the product, if, you, if it's a hot product, you can get a better price for it, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's the same, same logic really applies there. So if you've only got one interested party and you need the funding, guess what? You're probably going to have to sign up to a bunch of controls you might not want to because you don't have any leverage. Perfect. Thanks for that, Richard. Uh, Richard Morley, we, we, I'm a founder and I, I've just been through my exit and I, I've got this lump sum of money you know, obviously, I'm in a, a brave new world where I, I, I'm outside of the business. But you know, am I at the number that I agree on the dotted line? Um, you know, can you give me an idea of sort of the taxation around around the numbers that I'm receiving? Uh, yes, I can. I'm not a tax expert. I'll caveat. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, the term entrepreneurs' relief is something that that's probably you know most people on this call will be familiar with. It's now actually called business asset disposal relief. Um, but effectively, you know, it's something that, 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 that gives you a preferential tax rate on the first million quid of your sale, um, you know. Um, uh, and again, just to go back to what we were saying right at the start, if you can work on the, the basis that you're going to be existing a few years in advance, you can do all sorts of things to try and max, try to reduce the taxation ultimately that, that, you, that you're, you're hit with at, at, at D-Day or, or contract day, or whatever you want to call it. But I think the key... When you look on the other side of, of the deal, I think the key thing to think about is, you know, is, is what, what are you going to do? So what, you know, have a think, have a plan in advance is really helpful if you can. But if you don't have a plan, it might be worth just taking some time after you get the money in your bank account. Just take some time before you do anything. Um, 
you know, and, and I think flexibility is something that I speak to most clients about is, you know, it's all very well trying to be super clever and, and, uh, and avoid tax at every opportunity. Um, but actually a lot of, a lot of the ways in which you can avoid tax means that you're committing capital for a period of time or you're locking capital away and it's hard to get back. I think flexibility, particularly if you're young or younger and you're, um, uh, you've sold out and you, you, you know, you may well go again, or you may well invest in another business, uh, as Alan was saying, you know, invested in another business straight away, you know, keeping the flexibility with that money is, is probably something that I, I speak to most clients about on day one. And that's, you know, there's always an offset, a trade-off between saving tax and flexibility and having that conversation with the individual gets to the bottom of what's most important to them. Perfect. It's probably a good thing. Alan, just leading on from what Richard was just saying, um, you've obviously been through the process and you, again, just as Richard just described, you, you went straight back into another uh, business. How did you feel when you first exited and, and, you know, sort of what goes through your mind of what am I doing next? Uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a bit disconcerting to have, you know, a, a, a chunk of money suddenly put in your, into your bank account. You know, the, the sort of lottery winner effect. Whoa, great. And then what am I going to do with this? I, I can't spend all of this money. What am I going to do? And uh, the, the, the thing that, that I enjoy in life is, is doing things and, and uh, you know, uh, keeping busy all the time. So I, I, I quite clearly had in mind that, that as soon as the, the money was available, I would do something else. And I, I knew that the, the process was underway. And the, the uh, I got a phone call from from my from my lawyer, and I was already in a meeting with somebody who I was just about to invest in, and and, and did it straight away. So there's a you know a continuity in, in, in keeping busy. Uh, you know the alternatives are is just trying to find something when you got this money in, in the bank and thinking what mm -hmm. am I going to do? You know so so really really plan what what you intend to do with the rest of your your, your life. And if you enjoy sitting on a beach in in Bermuda, mm -hmm. you know for 12 months of the year, fine and dandy. But if you're a, a, an entrepreneur who's built a business, that's probably not going to uh, suit you for the rest of your life. You know, find, find something useful and, and, and fulfilling to do. And, and, and just one quick thing as well on, on, on tax uh, avoidance. Uh, I, I always, you know, th thought that people who avoided tax were, were, were horrible and, and shouldn't do it now. But, but do take professional advice. Uh, when I, I sold out, uh, part of my shareholding was, was gifted to my wife, and so therefore we, 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 uh, she, she had, you know, allowances that, that, that and we ended up paying paying less tax. Uh, and the advice for that cost was, you know, one tenth of what we saved in tax. So do do look at, at, at tax avoidance is legal. Uh, tax evasion isn't, you know. So so do look at tax of, uh, avoidance and. Your professional advisor should be able to point you in the right direction, shouldn't you, chaps? Yeah. Correct. I think I think it goes back. It goes back to what we said right at the start, and that and probably the key message from me on this would be to build the right team around you. You know, get the right advice at every stage, whether that's on the business, or whether that's for you personally. You know, it makes a big, big difference. And you know, part and parcel of what we do is we always bring in a, a tax advisor to give you that advice. As Alan says, it's a fraction of the cost of the saving. I guess one other point to mention quickly on tax before we turn this into a tax seminar is just that, you know, as soon as you sell your business, you know, when you've got your money in your business, it's it's inheritance tax friendly. As soon as you sell a proportion or all of the all of that business and the money's in your bank account, you know, that's you know, that's in your estate. You know, you've got Technically, you know, um, if you were to pass away, you'd lose 40% of that. I mean, less the odd allowance here and there, but, you know, it's, it's a, it, you know, it, it, it's a big consideration um, and it should be, I don't think it should be weighing on your mind on day one, but it's certainly something, if you have that advice in place previously, you can have a good think about how that affects you and your family um, before you actually receive those proceeds. Uh, just a reminder to everybody that we're going to be moving into a different room. If you look in the chat function, you can see there's going to be like a post networking discussion where rather than do a Q&A on here, we'll just open it up into a general Zoom room, I think. Um, so from three o'clock, um, you know, keep an eye on that chat button um, and, and follow the link through. Uh, just before we do, though, um, Mr. Millington, you've obviously been involved in lots of 
exits and sales. So, so you've obviously seen lots of founders and managers go various different ways. Um, you know, can you give us an idea, you know, sort of a flavor of what they've done post post sale, what the options are available to keep people? Yeah, most most of the guys I know who've who've been through it as a process, and actually it can also apply to senior execs, um, you know, in, in a lot of the US corporations that I've been in who've been party to options or LTIP schemes, who again have kind of kind of into money. And, and to, to Alan's point, they've all stayed in some way, shape, or form. You know, whether they take a period as a consultant where you get involved in a bunch of other businesses, maybe look at non-exec work, but. Uh, but at some point they, they always do want to get back involved in, in, in something. And it can be a whole range of stuff. I mean, I know there was, um, um, uh, there was a sportswear exec that I knew that went into um, CBD stuff afterwards, ended up building out farms of, of that over in the U S. So it's, there's all sorts of different ways of doing it, but Alan's exactly right. It's, it, you know, it will be a change and it'll be figuring out what it is you want to do with it and, and looking at those, those different things, different ways to, to spend your life. But it's from my experience, it has been, they've, they've wanted, it was like a, what you call, you know, portfolio career, right? I, some investments in, in, in businesses that they have an interest in some consulting, um, uh, maybe some not-for-profit work as well. So it's that kind of career that you kind of move, move into typically. Perfect. Um, and Richard, you obviously see, you know, the people once they've exited. So Mr. Morley, um, you know, that's my question. Um, <laughs> once they've exited, you obviously see them do different things as well. But, you know, from a financial point of view, does the finances make a difference? You know, Alan was saying some people might like to go on the Bermuda. You were talking about your magic number. Mm. Is there a, you know, does it differ per person, I suppose, is the question? Yes, it does. Um, I think what we typically what we'll try to do is we'll create what we call a never work again fund or a aptly titled NWAF. Uh, so that's a basically that is a you know that is a, a pot of money that will give you sufficient return and income to do whatever you want for the rest of your days and never have to work again. Assuming, of course, you know you've thought about the magic number and you've achieved that from your deals and that's typically how we would we would structure it alongside that you would technically you would then have a pot for lifestyle assets so you might go crazy you might want to buy a lamborghini or you might want to you know buy some property or you might want to gift money to your mom or what you know whatever it might be you know um generally there's there's a pot set aside for those the fun things that you might want to do on day one or at least within the first 12 months or so equally you might have philanthropic aims so you might want to look at again you know those that 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 are able to exit with a large sum of money that's far more than they need they may be they may want to do something with with charity or make charitable gifts so we have to consider that and then equally as we talked about before i think richard mentioned it as a portfolio investor you know what we tend to do is we'll we'll, we'll carve out a, a, a pot for private investments or so angel investing and we would attribute zero return to that now obviously that's not always the case and in lots of in lots of cases, those people who exit their business know a huge amount about their sector and their industry. They know how it ticks. They know who the good companies are. They know their mates who need some some investment uh, to grow. So, you know, it's creating capital or freeing up capital so that they can make those investments as and when they want to. So, as I was saying before, it's about creating something that will give them security, whereby if you've sold something that's your baby, you know, uh, you've built it from scratch, maybe you've, you've brought it through to, you've nurtured it all the way through. You've got, you know, you've built this, you may or may not ever be able to do that again. So it's creating the security on, on, on those proceeds. And then alongside that, making sure there's enough money there for fun and just, and just planning it out and making, you know, having a conversation um, about what they want to do. That's probably the, the starting point. That's that's very kind of you. And I think that there's there's one minute left before we, we head into the the networking room. So I'd just like to take this as an opportunity to thank um, Richard times two um, and Alan um, and Oliver in, in his absence. Um, you know, please do come into the networking. Uh, you know, the fashion network have, have sorted this out so we we can all speak to each other more freely rather than just through a chat function. Um, and you really do have you know, the, the best in the industry um, available at your disposal here. So if you've got a burning question, ask it. And equally, you know, if this is something that actually is affecting you now, you know, 
ask Alan for a bit of business advice if you need to. Ask Richard, he deals with the biggest companies and the biggest transactions that go on in the north uh, and the country, actually. That's probably a bit unfair. <laughs> He's just based in the north. Um, and, and the same for Richard Morley. So, so take it as an opportunity to, to get that, you know, those contacts. Um, but also, it doesn't end here, I suppose, is um, the, the, the sort of last point is, you know, if those conversations are going on either between you and your family, your founders, um, you know, we, we've spent a lot of time today talking about the benefit of getting that team in place. Um, so, so the sooner you do that is the better, but it's three o'clock now. Um, so I think it's time to click on the chat link uh, to the networking room if you can. Thank you.